Thank you for tuning in to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. To keep connected with us, follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and join our Calvary Connection. The vision of our church is to make Jesus famous. When Jesus is famous, everything changes, and he becomes our passion because his love is better than life. Today's message is from our monthly growth nights that are on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Pastor Nate teaches about being Jesus' famous men. Enjoy. So I went in there during one of the church services, and I picked up a little girl and was just kind of holding her. And I started noticing pretty quickly that the little girls, they really liked being held and were just kind of soft and squishy and would like hang out with me and like kind of grab my beard and stuff. And then all the little boys, they were just totally running around the room just creating mayhem, you know? They're just little terrorists and running around. And I just had this moment where I thought, I think God is gonna give me a daughter. And uh, he did, he gave me three daughters. I have no sons, so hopefully if you have boys, you don't check out at this point and say, well, this guy knows nothing about being a dad. Uh, But it's been such a thrill raising my kids. They all love Jesus. Of course, they have a long way to go. They're still young people. They've got lots of decisions that they're gonna make in their lives. Uh, But Christina and I, we love being parents. We love parenting together. And so it's an honor to talk to you tonight about uh, this subject, about serving our homes uh, for Christ. Now, I think you could say it this way. Every person on the face of the earth, I don't think this is too strong of a statement to make. Every person on the face of the earth is shaped by their father in some way. Even the absence of a father has an impact on a person's life, shapes a person's life in some way. It takes a male, of course, to contribute to a pregnancy, uh, but it takes a father to help build a legacy in a child's life. And God has designed the family like he's designed the church as an entity that plays a huge role in the development of his people, of human beings uh, here on earth. Now, we live in a time, of course, where even the definition of what a father is has come under uh, lots of duress and fire. I mean, if you turn on the television and you see what pop culture is saying about dads, you know, they're often presented in this gooberish uh, kind of way. You know, sitcoms are filled with the doofus dad who is uh, dumb, distracted, never knows anything, and all of that. That's kind of the era that we're in at this time. People think of a father often as dispensable, redundant, and even moronic. But God's view of dadhood or of fatherhood is so high that it's the title that he often uses for himself. He calls himself our father in heaven. Now, most of us, I think we wanna be good dads if we are dads. Uh, And if we're not uh, dads, we want to, at the very least, get an understanding of how to encourage other brothers in Christ who are going to occupy uh, that role. We, We wanna do a good job. Uh, We want the sphere of influence that God has given to us. That's a concept from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We all have a sphere of influence. We want that sphere of influence to be positively impacted as a result of us being inside of it. But a lot of times we lack the simple tools to get that job done. So that's what I wanna talk about tonight. I wanna get past the poor models or misperceptions regarding our role and even our own flesh or sin or lethargy and talk about how to be good leaders within the home, good fathers to our children. And I'm gonna try to just say this in four, um, I don't know if suggestions is too weak of a word, but Four exhortations on how to be, from Scripture, a good father. And the first one is this. Number one, if you want to be a biblical dad, a Jesus-famous 
father, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Number one, you've got to keep the main thing the main thing. If you think about what being a father is, uh, it's, it's interesting. The influence is so great. Um, you know, I, I think anybody who's been a dad before, you realize that. You know, you see how your mood, your temperament, the way that you are, even just a word or a look uh, can affect a child for, you know, weeks at a time without you even knowing it at times. The responsibility is so great, yet on the other the, the thing that's so ironic about it is that you don't have to take a class to be a dad. You don't need a degree to be a dad. There's no class that you pass to become a father. It's like we just kind of stumble into it. Uh, and there's really no professional father for us to look up to. We're all just kind of amateur trying to figure out how to learn and grow in this role as it comes our way. But if there was a figure that you would say is pro when it comes to being a father, you'd have to say, as I mentioned already, that it's God. It's God the Father. He's the ultimate father. He actually isn't borrowing the title from us. It's not like God in heaven looked down at us and he's like, man, what you guys are doing is amazing. I would like to be called that. It's that he graciously lends us the title that truly belongs to him. He says, I would like you to share in the role that I am living out for you. He's the ultimate father. Uh, as a father, he does fatherly things. He defines his children. That's one thing that fathers do. He protects his children. He teaches his children. He leads his children. He loves his children. And scripture tells us that he delights in his children. He gives an identity to his children and a heritage to every one of his kids. So when I say keep the main thing, the main thing, uh, the first part of that that I'm trying to point out to you is that as a father, you really don't stand a chance if you aren't, as a Christian man, experiencing God as your heavenly father on a regular basis. He is your greatest resource for knowing how to do this well in the lives of your children. Now, of course, this first comes by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So when I say keep the main thing, the main thing, I'm really going for the real main thing here by saying, if you don't know Jesus, you need to submit to him. You need to get saved. You need to believe in the gospel, trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin and come into the family of God so that Father God can have access to your heart and he can father you completely. But after that, and I think probably in this room, it's safe to say that most of us, but I don't wanna make any presumptions, my assumption is that if you're here on this Sunday night, that most of us have made that confession of faith, that we've believed in the message of the gospel, that God is in that position of father in our lives, but he should not only occupy the position of father and have his role neglected in our daily experience, we must pursue him. Day by day, week by week, year by year, you've got to press into your relationship with God so that you can feel what it's like to be fathered by God. And as you do, you'll become strengthened as a man to become a greater father than you ever would be able to be on your own, in your own power or in your own ability. Part of the reason that I mention this is because one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our children is our own personal transformation. We've got to be changed, we've got to be transformed, we've got to become more like Jesus. Um, I'm so glad that they grow up slowly because I've noticed that so do I. <laughs> I'm so glad that when I had my first kids and I was in my mid-20s you know, and thought I knew everything, I'm so glad that there was a little bit of time before they were you know, 16 and 17 and 18 years old and can ask me really challenging questions. <laughs> I'm so glad that I was able to grow over time into what I am uh, today. And we've got to grow. We've got to be walking with God so that this transformation can come. Uh, 
And a lot of men have allowed the beginning of a family to actually propel them in this direction. Uh, church statistics are, uh, kind of constantly communicate this idea that many people will you know, grow up in church, maybe leave the church for a while, get married, and have kids, and then at that stage, come back into church life, even kind of realizing, man, I need to raise my kids in the church. I need them to you know, hear uh, the word of God. I need to ha- have this positive influence in their lives. And in a sense, that's a good reaction. I mean, it'd be better never to leave in the first place, but it's good for us to say, you know what? Because these children are my responsibility, it's not time for me to coast in my walk with God. It's time for me to step up in my walk with God. Uh, having children is not the time at all to shelve your walk with him. It's a time to keep the main thing the main thing. It's a time to pick up the pace. The best thing you can give to those kids is personal godliness and holiness. Your wife needs a spiritual man, a man doing everything he can to crush the flesh and become a servant. So that's the first thing, you know, keep the main thing the main thing by walking with your father in heaven. But there's another part of keeping the main thing the main thing that I'd like to mention to you as well tonight. And it's that I would also want you to make sure that in if you are a father, that you do not neglect to the expense or the exclusion of your children. Do not neglect your marriage. Keep the marriage front and center and important. That's part of keeping the main thing the main thing. Walk with God and be a good husband. I mean, we all know how kids are made, right? You know, the birds and the bees, you guys have all heard this talk. You know, the, the reality is that it takes, or it is supposed to take, you know, a, a man and a woman, a husband and wife together, committed together in love to, to one another, that a child is supposed to be the, the offspring of that beautiful love and commitment uh, together. Sometimes that doesn't happen. People can't have children, or some even are choosing not to. But the reality is, is that a child... It, when they come into this world, that's the ideal, that they're the result of this marital love that has occurred. And a lot of times, it's interesting, it seems in many families, even Christian families, when children come into the picture, it's like the marriage gets put in the back seat, and the children take the prime position. This is part of the reason why uh, lots of divorces occur after children leave the home. Uh, this married couple has had a couple of decades to center their lives around the child, and with the child being gone, they don't have any uh, bearing any longer for their relationship. They haven't been looking at each other face to face. They've only been shoulder to shoulder or even back to back Uh, working in their home uh, for their children. It's good to remember that a baby is a result of love, not a replacement for it. So this is important. It's important for, you know, us in our, you know, uh, as husbands to make sure that we are strong in pursuing our brides uh, in the midst of the chaos of, Uh, raising kids, of having a family. And brothers, I think what I want to say is that uh, this responsibility, uh, it really does fall on you. Um, And part of the reason I say that is just because you, in your home, you're called to be the leader. And um, if your wife is the one that's like, hey, we got to take time for each other. We need to go on a trip together. We need to go on dates together. We need to talk together. If your wife is the one in the midst of raising kids that is bringing that up to you constantly, uh, just I know how there's like a man translator in our brains where when we hear stuff like that, it's like quit harping on me. You're nagging me right now. Uh, You need to flip it around in your mind and be like, I have an idea. (laughs) 
We need to go on dates together. We need to go on trips together. We need to spend time together. We need to do this because it should not be her role to try to get you to do something that really, as a married man, you should be pursuing and you should be doing and about. And I think another reason why this is important for a husband to initiate is because moms are moms. They love those kids. You could tell them that they could spend the rest of their lives just pouring into those little cherubs, and a lot of moms would just say, like, yeah, I'm down. I will, I will do that. I will make them the center of my universe. You are, in a sense, if I could say it like this, a rescuer to help her make sure that that is not where her heart goes completely. You've got to pull her out and say, hey, you're also a woman. You're a child of God. You're my wife, so let's spend that time together. So this is what I mean when I say this first point of keep the main thing uh, the main thing. Now, there's gonna be seasons of this where that's uh, harder than at other seasons. Uh, Our third daughter, I think I can say this by now, she's 15 years old and she's 14 years old, almost 15. She's an amazing person, but I I I think I've already told her that she was an accident. (laughs) <laughs> we didn't plan on having her. We, it wasn't the, the right you know, kind of moment, the right time. We had uh, our first, had just kind of gotten out of diapers, and then it's like we have a second in diapers still, and then it was like, oh, crap, she's pregnant, you know, kind of thing. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's not super fun to have three kids, I, I, my, my big thing is I, I loved the phase, I called it the they can get their pants on by themselves phase. I always loved that. Like, I can just tell you to go to your room and put on your pants and you can do it all by yourself. And to have three little kids who still can't totally put their pants on by themselves at the same time, it's like a really tiring season of life. And uh, there's uh, less romance in that time of life. There's less free time in that time of life. There's less like, you know, they go to bed and you're just feeling like, oh yeah, let's hang out. Let's spend time together. It's a little bit more like survival mode. So you have to be creative in seasons like that. Uh, Whereas in a season like I'm in now with, you know, daughters, like last night I was, hoping to hang out with one of them. And they were all just like, they took the cars, they all left, they were gone, they had stuff happening. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just chilling by myself tonight, you know, kind of thing. Uh, And there's just a little more space for it at different seasons of life. But don't forget to let the main thing be the main thing. Okay, the second thing I wanna talk about tonight, big principle is that To be a Jesus famous man, you've got to serve your household. You need to serve your household. Uh, This is, again, just a big picture thing. I'm not going to get into all the little uh, intricacies of exactly how to parent, you know, a three-year-old or how to parent a 16-year-old. But in general, we must be servants. We've got to serve our household. Jesus taught servant leadership with his words and exemplified servant leadership through his life. He told his disciples that the first must be last, that the greatest must be the least, and that the master must be the servant. When Jesus, on the night that he was arrested and tried on the eve of his most, the most brutal death ever imagined, what did Jesus do? He washed the feet of his disciples. He said, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Jesus is selfless act of service is meant to stand out as the ultimate illustration of selfless service and sacrificial love for every father. Uh, When Paul the Apostle was talking to the church in Philippi in the book of Philippians, uh, he was trying to talk to them about serving each other and uh, having a good attitude towards each other, considering others' needs above their own And as he groped for an example from Scripture, from the life of Christ, perhaps, that he could bring to bear upon the Philippian church, uh, he made one of the greatest theological statements in human history. (laughs) Uh, It's in Philippians chapter 2. He told them, 
In Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, he said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So here's Paul's description. That's Paul's description of how Jesus served us. He went from, he came to the point of death on the cross with various stages in between. So what I want you to think about with me for a second, and you could just be in Philippians 2 with your Bibles if you'd like to, so you could follow along with me. I want to think for a second about how Jesus served his household, because I think it'll help us think about how to serve ours. The first thing you see there is that he said he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the second person of the triune Godhead, that he's God himself, but he did not count his rights and position as something to hold on to or as something to grasp for. Jesus was willing to let it go. He was still God, but he allowed himself to become humbled for us. And I think all too often a, a father or a man in his home will lock in on his rights or on his position uh, or uh, on his privileges. And I think a lot of guys, you know, any sign of disrespect or slight, it kind of sets him off. His insecurity kind of gets the best of him. But the godly father is willing to let go of his rights in order to sacrificially serve his family. Jesus, though, did not just let go of his rights. It says in verse 7 that he emptied himself. That's the statement that is theologically profound from Paul. It's filled with lots of implications. Other Bible translations uh, can help us let this truth sink in. It says that Jesus made himself nothing in the NIV. In the New King James Version, it says he made himself of no reputation. And in the New Living, it says that he gave up his divine privileges. Jesus retained his deity, didn't let go of that, but this royal king of kings divested himself of his glory and became man for us, set aside the privileges of his divinity for us. You know, sometimes we say things like, you know, Jesus could have done this or that, Jesus could have, he, he, he was, at, he was uh, dependent upon the Father in his earthly form during his earthly ministry. There were things that he would not and could not do just at the drop of a hat. He had to have the permission of the Spirit because he had emptied himself, as Paul said here. And if Jesus could step out of heaven and into our mess in order to die for us, I'm sure uh, more of us fathers could you know, take a step of sacrifice lower ourselves, empty ourselves for our family. But notice also, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, it says in verse seven. He humbled himself to serve the Father. He was serving the Father, for sure, doing the Father's will, but also he was serving humanity. He was serving the lost. He was serving us. And we, as fathers, were called to serve. Uh, it's important, I think, for a dad to see himself as a servant to his home. Uh, raising children is an incredibly servant-oriented task. You know, it's one of those things that takes years of work. It takes years to build an adult, years to build a successful person. I'll never forget a friend of mine who told me that since the Jewish day, you know, back in the Old Testament era and even now, the Jewish day uh, in their mentality, it begins at sundown, you know, so the, the sun goes down and it's a new day at night. Um, and so he told me that what he tries to do is when he comes home from work, he tries to view that coming home as like a new day. This is the fresh start of a fresh day uh, because he knew when he came home it was time to serve, you know, that he'd just been at work all day, that he was pretty tired, 
But he he told me in a season of life where it was just labor intensive when he walked into the door of his home. And it helped him to think of that night as a brand new day uh, where it was time for him to serve his family. And at the end of a long day, you might want to come home and relax, but that might be the time that you're most needed. You might need to roll up your sleeves and play with your kids or listen to your kids, or feed your kids, or nurture your kids, or speak with your kids, or read to your kids, or clean up after your kids, or watch your kids. You might be needed in the morning or be called upon in the middle of the night. You know, babies and children, they just don't have on-off switches. (laughs) You know, they're always ready to go, so you have to always be ready to be a servant. Uh, when we had our first child, <clears throat> you know, when Lauren was born, uh, you know, it was, it's like, uh, she was just such a good little baby, and it just, I, kind of like, I remember we would describe it to people like, it's like having a living backpack that we have to bring everywhere. That's what our life is like. We're, we, were, we didn't really change anything. You know, some people, it's like they have a baby, and it's like, you're not going to see them for two and a half years, you know, it's like they are hunkering down somewhere. We weren't like that, you know, it was like, I was back at work three days later. I was preaching the word, you know, four days later. We were at church the next week. You know, we like, I don't even, nobody even told us about like germs and stuff. We're just like, hey, you want to hold her? You know, kind of thing. But she was just all over the place. And we were just having a great time. Um, It was pretty easy. But then when we had our second, uh, Violet, she she basically was born and then cried for two and a half years. (laughs) She was just sad. She was just always sad. And uh, nothing could make her happy except for mama. She wanted mom to hold her all the time. And uh, I realized, you know, during that season, okay, yeah, I'm going to have to serve in a different way during this season than I did before. I'm going to have to get up earlier than I've ever gotten up in my life. Uh, to be able to pull off my work and the responsibilities I have to my family. This is a time to really kind of roll up the sleeves and say, this isn't going to be forever, but I got to help. I got to help get this done. So we need to serve. Notice also how Jesus was born in the likeness of men, it says in verse 7. You know, God became a man. He became one of us. He created everything, and then he became flesh and dwelt among us. And when we're overwhelmed by the beauty of creation, we can remember that the God who, be, who made all of that, he also became one of us. He was far, but he came near. And I think what this helps us see about Jesus is that incarnational part of him where he was willing to travel a great distance in order to connect with us. This is a really important part of being a father. You know, your children, um, you know, I'm, I'm turning 44 next week. Um, a, f- a 44-year-old man, my, my children cannot relate to that. You know, they, they don't, they haven't had the life experiences that, that I've had. They, they, they haven't had, you know, they, they didn't grow up in the culture that I grew up in. They just can't relate to me in that kind of way. And what that means, at least in part, is that as their father, as this figure in their lives, I need to, like Jesus, incarnate to them. I need to be invested in who they are, what they're about, and what they're interested in. If if all I did, you know, lots of people, they're, like soul relationship with me is what we're doing right now. Like there's Nate, he's talking, I'm listening. And so some people might imagine that that's like my parenting style and it's not. I don't lecture my kids very often. I don't have big long speeches for my kids very often. I like talking with my kids. I like hearing what they're interested in. Uh, There's whole, like I, I remember you know, when all the Marvel movies started coming out years ago, you know, all the superhero movies, we had a youth pastor that was like all into them. I remember making fun of him so hard. I'm like, you're a grown man and you're into superhero movies? Like grown men watch Star Wars. They don't, 
watch that stuff, you know? <laughs> and just, I just hated all that stuff. You know, Captain America, I remember I went to the movie theater and watched that when it came out, and I was like, okay, if I never have to watch another one of these in my life, I'll be fine, you know? <laughs> that was a waste of time. But then my kids came along, and they were all, like, into this fantasy world and universe, and I realized, like, okay, they're really into this. If I don't slide into this, I'm going to be missing out on like a facet of connection with them that I think they'll really appreciate. It's not Jesus-y. It's not, you know, like we're talking about the Bible when we're leaving a movie theater. Like, well, did you see what Thor did? Well, that reminds me of when Jesus, you know, like that's not what's happening at all. But it's just, it's laying a baseline of relationship uh, with your kids. To me, it's a part of just trying to be incarnational with them. So now it's at the point where it's like, you know, there is a Thor movie coming out this summer, and they just look at me like, Dad, what night are we as a family going to see it together? Like, they just know. Well, this is something that our dad is going to enjoy with us, and it helps them feel, I think, to a degree, like I'm interested in uh, them. And I can be very self-absorbed and just kind of in my own little universe, so I have to try really hard to find uh, little pockets like that to really engage with them to be in more incarnational. Uh, fifthly, though, notice how Jesus, it says in verse 8, he was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Uh, Jesus learned, in other words, what obedience was, um, because he became uh, a man. <clears throat> um, and for us, we have to practice obedience as we serve the Lord. It also says, though, that he, in verse 8, uh, was obedient to the point of death. He, he was willing to go all the way to the point of death for us. Now, you might not have an opportunity to actually die physically for your family, but you're going to have lots of opportunities to daily die for your family, uh, to, to die to yourself for the sake of your wife or for the sake of your children. And then Jesus' death, it went all the way to the point, it says there, of death on a cross at the end of verse 8. Um, and this is radical sacrifice. So, this is what I wanted to say here in my second point. It's just that you must serve, like Jesus, serve your household. Lay down your life. Uh, in contrast, what would be the contrasting way if the way of Jesus isn't adopted? Well, I think it would be to be a bully in the home, uh, to never serve, to command, to never listen, to never tenderly care for your wife, to kind of bully with your words or even your body, your strength, the physical strength that God has given to you. Um, maybe even as a Christian man taking verses in the Bible about submission and leadership and things like that and uh, using them, twisting them, for your own selfish purposes. Uh, these are not, this is not the way that God has for us. He wants us to be loving, sacrificial, generous men who give up our lives for our families. Okay, the third thing I want you to see, though, is um, I think a, another thing, if you want to be a Jesus-famous um, man in your home, serve your home well, you need to, number three, lead your household. Got to serve your household, but you also need to lead your household. I want to talk about that for a second. Um, <clears throat> I remember years ago sitting with uh, my three girls. I tried this thing for a little while called family church. It lasted for like two months. But um, it was like we were going to have like a little Bible study together and it was going to be like interactive or whatever. And what I discovered really quickly is that it like really stressed everybody out. They were like super worried that I was going to like quiz them or something. Like it was not a good experience. But I remember uh, during this time, I found other ways to teach my kids uh, the word. But during one of these conversations, 
Uh, we were, I think, in the Gospel of Mark, the third chapter, when Jesus goes up to the mountaintop and he prays about who should be his disciples and he selects the 12. And uh, I remember distinctly Christina looking at the girls as we were kind of talking about it, and she said, girls, do you, uh, do you think it's fair that all of Jesus' apostles were, were boys, they were men? There's no girls. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they sat there thinking about it. They're like seven and five and three, you know, they're thinking about it. And they're like, man, we've heard Jesus is awesome at church. And our family keeps telling, our parents keep telling us this. So they're like, I don't think the right answer is that it's unfair for Jesus to do this. Jesus is good. So they're like, no, he's, uh, he's, he's amazing. So no. He's not, and I think one of them was even like, he died on the cross, so he's good. He's, he, it wasn't, shouldn't have, it's not a bad thing. So then uh, she, Christina followed up with them, and she said, uh, do you think that boys are better than girls or that men are better than women? You know, do you think that? And uh, you can imagine how they answered that question. They resoundingly, you know, shouted like, no, no way. You know, they... They knew for sure that boys were not better than girls and that uh, men were not better than women. They, what they argued for was equality. They said they were, we're equal before God. So I then asked them, I said, well, if I asked them if they think that God the Father and God the Son are equal. And uh, they were able to say, yeah, you know, you've taught us that there's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Spirit, and they're all God, part of this thing called the Trinity. Then I asked them if Jesus had been obedient to the Father. Had the Father led the Son? And they knew that he had, that the Father had told Jesus to go do what he did in dying for the sins of the world. And I asked them, does that make Jesus lesser than the Father? And they said, no, he's equal to the Father. He's equal to the Spirit. Uh, the reason I'm pointing that out is because even though men and women are created equal in God's sight, that doesn't mean that there aren't different roles that God has designed for us. Just like there's different roles in the Trinity between Father and Son and Spirit, so there will be different roles inside even a marriage or a family. A husband is never greater in quality than his bride, but he is called to be the leader. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, he said, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So father, Christ, husband, bride. That's the proper order. Jesus leads you. You submit and surrender to him. You give him full access and rule in your life. Then you're to lovingly and gently lead your bride. Now, when Paul wrote to uh, Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, he was talking to Timothy all about how the church is supposed to operate and look. And he gave Timothy directions, or better word would be qualifications for what pastors or elders in the church would look like. And he gave this one statement about what a pastor's home should look like. Listen to this. He said, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Now, that's not the only requirement that Paul listed for pastors, but this is interesting. It's interesting to me that this makes it into the list that the Spirit writes concerning a pastor uh, and his family. Now, right after he talked about pastors, he talked about then deacons or the people taking care of the practical issues in the church. He said in 1 Timothy 3, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. Uh, in other words, the deacons were called to the same thing that the pastors were called to, an upstanding family life. 
And the word that I want to point out, I mean, I should probably mention that those, those passages have been taken in some weird ways by many churches over the years looking for some kind of sinless perfection in the lives of the children of the pastor or something like that, or looking at their lives even after they're out of the home or whatever. Uh, but the point that I want to point out or the thing that I want to draw your attention to is the word that Paul used for both the deacon and the pastor in their home. They're to manage their household well. This word manage means to superintend, to preside over, to protect, to care for, to give attention to, to lead, to manage their households and children. Uh, this style of leadership, it's not something that, it's, it's not like when Paul says these things about what a pastor needs to look like or what a deacon needs to look like. It's not like Paul is saying like, and nobody else should even aspire to that. No, the pastor is supposed to be a model believer that other men in the church, even if they're not pastors, says, oh, I want to follow. So like when Paul says to the pastors, like, or, or about the pastors, he can't be given to much wine. Uh, it's not like he's saying, but like, but all the other guys just go crazy. You know, that's not his point. When he says that pastors should be uh, not greedy, for money, he's not saying, but all the other guys go crazy. You know what he's trying to say is this is the, the exemplary Christian man, and so uh, everybody should want to pursue those attributes in their own lives, including this one, to manage his own household uh, well. And that word, I, I think it's perfect to describe the fatherly role, to, to manage well a father or a husband does not need to be involved in the smallest details. Uh, if you're anything like me, when you start getting into like that real high level detail oriented conversation with your wife about parenting or you know just anything, uh, you, if you're anything like me, like that's the moment where I need all of the Holy Spirit's help to focus and think through like all the variables that she's running towards me and all the details that she's given to me. And it takes, you know, uh, the help of the Holy Spirit for me not to say the words, bottom line it for me. <laughs> like, I, I gotta really make sure I've tried to do that before. I thought this will be helpful. Uh, she doesn't know that I'm just looking for the bottom line. I'll just let her know that. She didn't care about that. The details are important, and I've just, okay, I've got to do that. But the word manage, it keeps you out of the fray. It keeps you above all of that. To manage well, a father and husband uh, can be involved in the large-scale decisions that are made within the home, even in moments when he's deferring to the expertise or counsel of someone else particularly his bride. And I think the reason why this uh, word manage or the phrase manage their children or manage their own households from 1 Timothy 3, I think the reason why it stands out to me is because I think a lot of modern fathers feel that they have no permission to do this. Uh, they listen to the ridiculing voice of culture and they doubt the insecurity in their own minds and they believe that they have nothing to offer when it comes to leadership among their children or their home. A lot of fathers automatically defer to their wives. And when they do that, they're forcing their wife to take a position and role that she was not designed for. Putting her in the primary leadership role in the family. A mother is called to love her husband and love her children, but to be placed in the sole leadership position of the family is unbiblical and unhealthy for her. It'll do weird stuff to her. It's not as it's meant to be. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying right now. I'm not saying that your wife isn't going to have an incredible amount of wisdom when it comes to leading the children and creating the household that you both desire. You know, what I've discovered in my marriage to Christina is that, you know, I pray for my kids, but she really prays for our kids. And I think about my children, but she really thinks about our children. 
You know, I'm concerned about their future, but she's really concerned about their future. You know, for her, it's the primary thing. You know, for me, I got all kinds of other things to be thinking about. You know, I'm praying about the church all the time. There's, you know, work, there's career. I think a lot of guys can relate to that. So it's not that I'm not concerned with those things. I'm intensely concerned with those things. But at times when we're trying to figure out where to go, how to, how to navigate a thorny issue, how to direct our kids, how to parent them, I found that I'm sitting right across this gold mine of a person who has so much wisdom that I need to try to draw out of her. So I'm not saying that a wife or a mother should not be consulted or mined for that wisdom or uh, even uh, you know, followed in the sense of, man, your perspective is the right perspective. But a husband should not punt that responsibility and just say, you know what, you're, you're pretty much always right, so we'll just do what you think, what you want to do. No, you've got to, um, you've got to continue to manage your household. I think probably if I'm to say it more simply, there's going to be a lot of times where a simple yes, dear, is enough. Uh, but there are times where you're going to have to be more involved. You're going to have to manage. Now, there's a million decisions when it comes to bringing up a family, but I'd like to hold out to you three categories that a dad should be involved in managing his household. <clears throat> Uh, these are categories that you're going to need to talk with your wife about. You're going to need to get counsel and wisdom from people that you respect and admire, and you're going to have to go to the Word of God to gain a perspective about. Okay, here's three of them. You're going to have to go to the Lord and go to godly counsel and talk with your bride about your family structure, about your family structure. Uh, these hopefully are things that you've already talked about, but there's a structural philosophy to your family that you and your bride need to agree upon. Um, part of what I mean is you have to figure out, well, kids are in the house, how are you guys going to handle that? How are you going to do that? Um, our culture sometimes frowns upon a woman uh, devoting herself primarily to raising kids or building a home. Um, uh, unfortunately, there are times where that's not even sustainable. It's not possible for a woman to devote herself entirely to her household. Uh, Paul does have some strong words. Um, scripture, he says in Titus 2 verse 4, Paul says, a young woman should love her husband and children and pay attention to the home. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, Paul has strong words for those who would refuse to provide for or take care of their families. He says bluntly, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, some have taken those kinds of concepts from Scripture and said, if, you're, if your wife is out there working at all, then you're somehow in disobedience to God. You have to provide 100% of what's required or what's needed for the family to get by. Uh, that might have made sense in a less agrarian uh, or, or a completely ag uh, agrarian world. Uh, but in our urban and suburban world, uh, you think about it, it's like, you know, in, a, in an agrarian society, if you were the farmer, you were taking care of the field, well, what would the homestead be? It'd be work all day long. So a stay-at-home mom, she's not just like changing a diaper and then monitoring the baby monitor, you know. She's working all day long. So in our modern society, it, stands to reason that a woman is going to be probably working, perhaps out of the home, receiving payment for it. Uh, if you can get by without doing that, beautiful. Uh, but I know my bride has said to me, you know, as the years have gone on and our kids have gotten older, she said, I want to be a good steward of my time. And uh, so we're in a phase right now with kids going off to college where, praise God, we're in a position where we can say, all right, she's gonna pay for them to go to school by working more than she's worked in the past. 
but you've got to talk with your wife about this. You need to manage your household. You need to be thinking about the family structure. Are we both gonna be working full-time? Is one of us gonna be working part-time? My prayer for us as Jesus' famous men that is that if one of us works part-time, it's not the man, but it's her as the wife or as the mother who would take that part-time gig or even just stay home entirely. But you've got to take the lead in that area of life. Second area I'd say you've got to uh, manage your household is in the realm of child development. Um, there's a lot of philosophies available to the modern parent. Uh, you could get online right now and find thousands of conflicting ideas on how to develop a child into a fully functioning adult. And they can be quite overwhelming you know, to consider all these various philosophies. Uh, do I, you know, put my baby on a rigid feeding schedule or do I feed them whenever they seem hungry? Um, are they supposed to sleep in our bed or should they sleep in their own bassinet? Are they gonna get their driver's license when they're 16 or when they're 18? Do we make them pay for everything or do we pay for part of it? Or, you know, how are we gonna do you know, parenting, and it can, be, it can be a lot, but the point that I wanna make is that as fathers, we need to be involved in that process. We need to be involved in that process. Um, you know, for instance, and I don't I mean to be, I used this word this morning, an incendiary by saying this, but there's a lot of different ways to raise your kids when they're really little. Uh, some families, you know, they like to have like the, the family bed, you know, kind of thing where the kids are sleeping in the bed and all that. That's fine. Christina and I, we didn't do that. But the, the thing to me that's important is that a father is involved in that decision. That's the thing that I'm trying to point out to you. Uh, because I've known fathers who they really had no role in talking about that. It was just they were kind of told this is the way it's going to be in our family. And there was no dialogue. There was no discussion. There was no asking, well, why, why are we going to do it this way? Are we sure we want to do it this way? A father needs to be involved in the child development philosophy of his family. And then the last category I would say is important for a man to manage in his home is he should be involved in helping to choose the disciplinary method that um, he and his bride are going to consistently follow together. Uh, Jesus has to be the one to save your kids. There's not gonna be any like system that makes them be what they need to be. Um, but the thing that I'd point out to you is that the Father's discipline in our lives, it's very consistent. So I think you need to create a predictable style of discipline versus an arbitrary style where children have no idea what will be punished or what will not be punished or disciplined and have no idea if you're going to follow through or not. I've seen way too many parents use empty words when it comes to giving discipline to their kids. You know, you need to come here right now. Then the kid doesn't come. <laughs> well, man, you, you were just disobeyed. Why, what are you gonna do? Oh, you, now you need to come on the count of five. Five, four, three, two, one. They don't come. What are you gonna do? You have to be very consistent in the discipline that you bring to your children. You can't train them to think that your words to them, your uh, rules that you've given to them, that they're negotiable in each little moment. I'll try to remember the four rules that we had when we were raising our kids when they were little. Uh, we put them on a postcard or an index card and we put them on the refrigerator. The first one, I think, was, I'll try to remember them off the top of my head, be respectful to your parents. Okay, that's a big one right there. Covers like a million things. I didn't need to say like, you can't look at me wrong. That's rule one. And you can't throw food at me. That's rule two. It was just respectful to your parents. Uh, second one was 
You need to have a pleasant attitude. You know, because what we're going after is the heart, not just outward compliance, but, but the heart. So pleasant attitude. Uh, man, I'm going to whiff on number two, or number three and four right now. You can't be disrespectful to your parents. Oh, you have to obey your parents. There's going to be things that we ask you to do. You need to do those things. I can't remember the fourth, but our style of uh, discipline, we agreed on it early on. We said, okay, what we're going to do is uh, we are going to, if they break one of those rules, uh, we're going to make them sit there and fold their hands, and they have to look in our eyes, and they have to tell us what they did wrong. You know, I threw my... Uh, train set toy at my sister's head, you know? And they have to tell us what rule that was. Oh, yeah, the other one was unkind to others. (laughs) Well, I was being unkind to others. Yeah, that's right. What do you say? I'm sorry. Okay, we forgive you. Let's pray together. And you move on. That takes time, takes energy, takes, you know, disrupts everything. But if you're not consistent with that and you don't help your wife develop that, then it's just going to be this chaotic, like, I don't know, they're having a meltdown in Costco, what do we do, you know, kind of thing. We had this, like, fifth uh, asterisk rule, too. It was just like a clause. It was called the preciousness of others. So if they were, like, freaking out in a restaurant, it was like, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, and this is terrible for all these people, so we're out. And we would just leave because we knew we wanted to take care of the preciousness of others. But you gotta be involved with your wife in that is all I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to give you a way to do it, but I'm trying to say you gotta be involved in creating uh, what that's gonna look like in your home. Okay, let's close out tonight uh, this long teaching with one last thing. Uh, the fourth of the uh, suggestions I've, I've give to you about being a Jesus-famous uh, servant in your home or father is, lastly, this, real simple, you gotta be a good man. Be a good man. Uh, in the midst of all of this, you gotta remember you're a man. You're a son, you're a husband, you're a servant, you're a leader, you're a dad. And what that means is that you have a unique role in your home. Uh, You might even have boys in your house, but you are the living embodiment and definition of what a man is to everyone under your roof. They're looking at you. You're the readiest definition of manhood that they can find. Uh, so this doesn't mean that you have to puff out your chest and you got to, you know, be Rambo about it or anything. Uh, you don't need to start acting manly uh, in order to carry out this role. You just got to know that as the man of the house, you're the one that they're looking at to tell them what a man is all about, sons and daughters alike. You know, I want my daughters to, to marry well, but I'm Personally, my conviction is, you know, I mean, I can't guarantee anything about the choices that they're going to make in the future, but I don't want to have to ask God to, God, please have mercy on me and give them husbands that are better than me. I want to be able to say to God, God, I want to be the kind of man that I want them to pursue in the future. So, Lord, help me to be that kind of man. We're that definition in their lives. So we have a great role model for what a man is all about. It's Jesus. He's the ultimate man. He wasn't adventure man or hobby man or obnoxiously loud man. He was the sacrificial son of God who took our burdens and made them his own. And that is a great definition of what it means to be a man, responsibility, Jesus took responsibility for us. He didn't cause our problems. He didn't create our troubles. But he, Isaiah 53 says, bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Not just one time on the cross, but continually. He serves us from his position in heaven. Hebrews 7.25 says that he always lives to make intercession for us. So this man, Jesus, above all men, he became our great servant responsible for us. 
And I think we live in a world and in a time uh, that is a world that's screaming for men to take responsibility. Um, if, you're, if you're young and a man, you are going to spend more on car insurance than anybody else. Uh, it's not arbitrary. There's a reason for it. And they know you're the craziest of all the people that are out there. And in our video game obsessed, pornography addicted culture, there's a need for a generation of men to rise up and take responsibility for their lives and their families. But this is often where we fall short in our message. We just say, you know, get your act together. You know, get a calendar, tuck in your shirt, and take responsibility. But Jesus so completely owned our weakness and brokenness. He didn't leave us to fend for ourselves. He stepped up and took responsibility, not just for himself, but for us. God's men will be responsible for the lives that are entrusted into their care. They'll sacrificially love and nurture their wives and children and leave a legacy for generations. So be a man like Jesus and take responsibility. And when Jesus did this, he committed himself to us. We're called to be extremely committed men. Our families, especially, of course, our wives, they gotta know of our deep and covenantal sense of calling to them. Uh, they experience security in our commitment, not having to wonder, is he gonna run this race to the very end or is he gonna dip out at some point? It says in Proverbs 27, verse eight, like a bird that strays from its nest is a man who strays from his home. Don't stray, don't wander. Throw yourself into your family. I think a lot of men begin to drift from their homes once children come into their lives. You know, being a parent is hard. And life isn't like it was before. This is one of the reasons, I mean, I, I, I love all different types of families and how families are built, but I always get a kick out of when I have friends who have been married for like a decade without having kids and then they have their first kid. It's so fun to watch that experience uh, because it just rocks their world so hard. You know, if you just like got married and then like a couple years later started having kids, it's like you don't even really know what you're doing yet. But 10 years, you got a groove, you got a system, you're a team, things are flowing, vacations are happening, dual income, no kids. Man, you're loving life. Then you have kids and it just rocks your world. And a lot of guys begin checking out at that point. They begin drifting. But I want to encourage you to be committed. Be around. Jesus worked hard to serve his disciples. They were uh, an endless task. Jesus, Proverbs 27, 23, knew well the condition of his flocks. He gave attention to his herds. His work towards his disciples was constant. He was very committed. So be committed, be all in, take responsibility like Jesus. Now, in comparing ourselves and trying to be like Jesus, we have to admit that there's a massive difference. He's perfect, he's glorified, he's without fault, he's without blemish. Thankfully, he's producing the same thing in us, but... I'll say it like this, we are, as men, a work in progress, amen? We're not to strut around as if our children are the only ones called to grow up. We're called to grow up as well. We have to, with humility, receive the grace of God for change and transformation in our lives. Here's what the people in your life really want. Uh, they want you know, everybody in your life, your wife, if you're married, your children, if you have them, everybody in your life knows that you're a work in progress. They know that. Here's what they want, though. They want to know that you know that. And they want to see they are taking the steps that are necessary for someone for whom that's the reality. So, for instance, they want to see that you're pursuing deep and meaningful accountability and friendship with other men who are Jesus guys 
who will point you in the right direction. They want to see that. Now, that helps them know and understand, like, okay, this guy understands that he needs help from other brothers in Christ to stay faithful and true. They want to see that you're a man who knows how to confess his sins, who says sorry to them when he needs to. They want to see that. They want to see a man who is opening his Bible and studying the word because he knows he needs to be directed by God. When they don't see those things or they don't see a life of prayer where you're going to God, getting his resources and help, but it's harder for them to see a man who's a work of progress who knows he's a work of progress. So pursue these things. Show them that you know that God is working in your life. So brothers, we're called to an incredible work if we're dads, if we're fathers. It makes me think of the book of Nehemiah when they asked Nehemiah to come down from the wall to stop building for a little while. He said, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it? And I think that's a great depiction of what it means to be a father. It's nonstop, there's always work to do, Why stop and come down from that work? We have to keep moving on because uh, the work is good and God has blessed us with this responsibility. So Father, we come to you tonight and we pray that you'd help us to be men who serve and manage our families well. Help us, Lord, in this great calling and task of being fathers to bring honor and glory to you in it. Thank you, Lord, for these men and for every one of them that is a father, whether their kids are very old or very young or somewhere in between. I pray, Lord, and ask that you'd make them into men who, like Christ, initiated, pursued us and connected to us by laying down his life for us. Thank you, Lord, for being the ultimate model, the ultimate father, Help us, Lord, to press in to you to get everything we need so that we might be able to father well in return. Thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary, please visit calvary.com. We hope to see you at our next growth night on the first Sunday of every month at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, church. God bless.